got some context readings to get through. Pastor David just did a phenomenal job this morning with the core passage. And it makes it uh, where I almost wish there was some way that, that, that we could integrate it where he could stand up and, 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 and say 10 minutes worth. And then I could say, okay, time out for just a minute. And then I could get up and like give 10 minutes of our context and then say, okay, it's your turn again. And then, you know, like tag team wrestling, uh, if, any of y'all watch that? Anyway, um, <clears throat> it's an honor to get to follow on the heels of such a fantastic, fantastic lesson. I want to look at it, and I want to look at it from a couple of different ways. Um, that gavel should not be there. Let me get rid of it. There, that's better. The grumbling response. The grumbling response. When Jesus, you'll recall the, the, the little video before the sermon this morning, how Jesus, the followers, were mounting, were mounting, were mounting, and there were more and more and more until Jesus, in the Gospel of John, the way John tells it, gave this very direct, very emphatic statement that it's not all going to be free bread. It's not all going to be healing. There's actually going to be a very difficult road. And it's going to be a road and Jesus gives this message of I'm the bread of heaven and you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a lot of people were saying, okay, this just crossed into the land of the goofy. And this is harsh. And, and, and the Jews that, that were responding negatively to Jesus is very clear. And, and David, Pastor David, I couldn't have said it any better than he did. Jesus was very clearly telling those people in language they understood that he, Jesus, was the Son of God. That he was an equal of God. See, the Jews, as David said, no Jew would ever say, my father, referencing God. Jews would say collectively, our father. They would never say, my father. And personalize it. Avi in, in Hebrew. My father. And yet Jesus does. And it causes some of the Jews to grumble. And to get this into the best context we can for the reading that I gave you. We'll look specifically at the John passage. Where John uses that word. Now John of course is writing in Greek. But uh, 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 he uh, uh, knows what he's doing. Very carefully. 641 in the John passage. The Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Now they said, isn't this Jesus? He's the son of Joseph. We know father and mother. How does he say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, said, don't grumble among yourselves. And that's where Jesus starts saying that I can't do this but for the Father. And he says, your fathers, verse 49, ate the man in the wilderness. They still died, by the way. But this bread that comes down from heaven, which Jesus has just said, is Jesus. I, it's me, he says. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it. And not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. You eat of this bread, you live forever. 
and the bread I'll give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, when John writes this, John is a man of the Bible. John knows his Older Testament. Those were his scriptures. And in this conversation where Jesus speaks of being the manna and draws the parallel between Jesus coming down from heaven and God sending the manna from heaven, the word grumble is a very significant word. The Jews got in... No, not Jews. They're Jews after the exile or after the the northern kingdom goes off. Then they become Jews because they're the ones from the tribe of Judah. But back in the Exodus, in fact, I've got that typo in the lesson I need to change. They need to be called Israelites. The Israelites get in trouble because of their grumbling. So we looked at Numbers 13 through 14 and Numbers 16. Three different chapters in Numbers. We called out Numbers 15 for April Fool's Day. You'll see why when you read on April 1st, if you're following along the reading plan. But Numbers 13 through 14. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you'll send a man, even one chief from among them. So they sent him out. And it lists who they were. Moses says, go spy out the land of Canaan. Whoops. Okay, there we go. Uh, There. See, I got technology down. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he says, go up into the hill country and see what the land is. So the people go in. And you remember the story, if you didn't read it fresh this week. At the end of 40 days, they came from spying out the land. And what did they say? They're giants. Man, these these are monsters. These people are huge. Now, the food there is indeed good. Grapes, they're like grapefruit. They're huge. Lots of land flowing with milk and honey. But there's no way we take this land. Those guys are giants. Now, these are one of those marvelous passages of Scripture that really help us understand what it means to believe in the truth of Scripture. Scripture is not God telling us that there were giants in the land. The people who dwell in the land are strong. Their cities are fortified and very large. And we saw the descendants of Anak there. The, 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 they're the giants. Now, what Scripture tells us is, these sissy spies came back and told this to Moses. It doesn't tell us that there were really those people in there. This is a bunch of wimps who came back scared out of their britches and concocted some good lines to keep from having to invade. As a practical matter, it doesn't matter if they're giants or not. Goliath did not fare so well against David. When David is the hand of the Lord. But this is just a passage. When I was a kid, I remember reading this and thinking, 
wow, how come we've never found all these giant bones over there? And how come, and don't, if you've got the internet PowerPoint that goes around, don't send it to me saying, have you not seen this internet PowerPoint where they found giant bones? Because that was a Photoshop contest that's made it into a PowerPoint and an internet legend. But that's not what the scripture is teaching us. What the scripture is teaching us is these guys came back and they didn't believe it. So the congregation believes. The congregation raised up with a loud cry. Look at chapter 14. This is at the end of 33. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, and we seemed like grasshoppers to them. They were like 25 feet tall, maybe 30 They weighed 650 pounds of muscle. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. Moses is going to make us go fight 90 foot giants. And all the people of Israel, what'd they do? They grumbled. They grumbled against Moses. They grumbled against Aaron. The whole congregation said, Oh, I wish we just died in Egypt. Oh, I wish we just died in the wilderness. Instead, we got to die by the sword of a 90-foot giant. And then our wives and little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better to go back to Egypt? Let's find somebody. Let's go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, they tore their clothes. They said to everybody, the land which we pass through to spy it out, it's exceedingly good. If the Lord delights in us, He'll bring us into the land. He'll give it to us. The land that flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. They're bread for us. We'll have them for breakfast. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord's with us. Don't fear them. So the reaction of the people was just, okay, let's stone these two losers. <laughs> They've clearly put a kink in our plan. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, look at this. The people who are grumbling are people who despise God. How long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. You could take that verse of the Lord. You could take those words of the Lord and plug them into the John story. Jesus has been healing the sick. Jesus has just fed 5,000 people miraculously. Jesus has walked on water. Jesus is master of the elements. Jesus supplies the needs of everyone. And there are people grumbling who do not believe, who do not want to follow, who despise Him. 
How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I'll strike them with the pestilence. I'll disinherit them and I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses says, please don't do that, Lord. Please don't do that. And Moses intercedes on their behalf and points out things that, that lessons that the Israelites needed to know. The Israelites needed this story of Moses. The Israelites needed to know you grumble, you rebel, you, you don't believe and trust in the Lord. And the just consequence is destruction unless someone holy intervenes on your behalf and calls upon the mercy and grace of the Lord. But for that, you're gone. Because remember, as John points out, Moses is the prophetic figure of who Jesus will be, except Jesus is Moses on steroids. Jesus will... Jesus is Moses on steroids when it comes to this. Jesus will not just plead an intercession for God to stop the destruction of the unbelievers and the grumblers and the, the whiners. Jesus will actually become the intercession. He will become the disinherited. He will bear that penalty. So this intercession story is not because God needed Moses to change God's mind. It's because God needed Jesus to meet God's justice, to allow God's mercy, to save God's people. And so the story is put here for us for that reason. But God promises judgment. If you continue to read through here, you will see the grumbling over and over and over. Seven times the word grumbling is used in this passage because it's what the people did. Then we skip chapter 15 and we went to chapter 16, which gives us more of it. In chapter 16, we have Korah's rebellion. Korah, the son of Izar, son of Kohath, son of Levi and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. By the way, I always, as the lawyer in me, finds it really interesting. This is a total aside. You may not give a rip about this, but somebody on the internet might. There is a host. There is. A host is singular, right? so there is a host, of many scholars around the world who claim that the Old Testament books that we're reading right now are fictional histories composed in around the 600 B.C. range when the Jews were trying to establish a national identity. And so they made up Moses, they made up the Exodus, they made up all of these stories to try to give some national identity to a people that aren't really descended from Abraham because Abraham's made up, but are just sort of descendants of the mountain people who lived in the land of Cana. Now, there are lots of historical and archaeological problems with that, but some of the people who trumpet this, who have best-selling books 
on the New York Times bestselling list at times. Some of the people who trumpet this are themselves uh, qualified archaeologists. Israel Finkelstein, for one. And I just find it very curious that people who are supposedly making up a history 600 years after it happened bother to stick in all of these verses, making up all of these names that would have absolute no relevance to anybody hardly at all unless you happened to be there at the time and cared about these people and their descendants. This is very useful for the next 50 to 75 years, maybe 100. But 600 years, who makes up all these names for a fictional history? Especially if you don't have a word processor. I mean, you're handwriting this stuff? I might do one or two to make it look authentic. But by the time I get to spelling out Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, I'm leaving out on the son of Peleth and the sons of Reuben. But, be that as it may, just an indicia of credibility, if you will. They rose up before Moses with a number of the people. And what do they do? They say, you've gone too far. In the congregation, all in the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord's among them. But you're exalting yourself above the assembly of the Lord. Now, when Moses hears this, he falls on his face. And he says to Korah and his company, Okay, show and tell. In the morning, the Lord's going to show who's his, and the Lord's going to show who's holy, and who will bring near him. And the one he brings near to him, he chooses, he'll bring near to him. So do this. You take censers, 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 like incense holders, Korah and all your company, put fire in them, put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and we'll just see whom the Lord chooses to be the holy one. You want to know who's gone too far? It's you, sons of Levi. And and what happens uh, happens, and so uh, they they kind of like the ground opens up, and swallows them. It's bad news for them. And the grumbling people continue through that chapter. So we have this grumbling, and I and I reference it as loony Jews. Loony for two reasons. Number one, why would anyone grumble against or disbelieve in the face of that? Why? Reason number two, the root for this Hebrew word for grumbling is loon. It's actually L-U-N. It's the long U. Loon. Now, loon itself isn't the Hebrew word. It's used in a different aspect in the Hebrew. But that's the root. The root. Loon. They're loony. And it's just as loony for us to grumble before the Lord. You're saying, well, it's a little different for me. Uh, He hadn't fed 5,000 people that I, I wasn't there for that miracle. How many of you have eaten in the last month? Okay. Well, I'm eating in the last month because I've worked hard to make my money, to buy my bread. Be real careful. 
All good gifts come from the Lord. Be real careful. We don't need to be grumblers. We need to be praise the Lorders. Okay? So, with that, here, Dale. Anybody care to guess what that is? That's your point for home. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We're going to have a little point for home intermission here. Um, away with the loony behavior. Instead of loony behavior, I want to roll up my sleeves and help the Lord with whatever he's about. If he says, you got to eat my blood and drink my flesh and follow me, hey, I'm there. If he says, go take the Holy Land, hey, I'm there. If he says, go back to Louisiana this afternoon, hey, I'm there. If he says, whatever he says, I want to do. And I'm not going to do it with grumbling and complaining. And, and I'm not saying that there's not room for a little Tevya in life. You remember Fiddler on the Roof, Tevya? He's got that constant dialogue going with God. God, we're the chosen people. I'm grateful. But every once in a while, couldn't you choose someone else? There's room for a little Tevya in it. You can read the Psalms and read the struggles. Lord, I'm not real happy with the way this is going. But it's a faithful conversation. But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that I've committed to him against that day. When oceans rise... Were you in for the ocean song this morning? It's a hill song, United. You can get it on iTunes. When we sang that this morning, I had no clue. I've never heard it sung in a church service before. What a song. What a song. You know, when the waters rise, I will call upon his name. And he'll teach me to walk. So, that's my point for home. And the Luke 15 passage, which was put into reading that day, is one that helps us get there. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And what were the Pharisees and the scribes doing? Grumbling. Bunch of loonies saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus tells him a story. He says, hey, which of you, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one, which of you just sit back and say, oh, that's okay, I got 99 more? Or which of you says, okay, I got 99 more, but I'm going to hey, leave them over there for a moment, and I'm going to get the one that we just lost. And when I find it, they'll be rejoicing. And I'll call my neighbors and friends together and say, hey, let's kill him and eat him because I just found him. Actually, he doesn't say that, though he may have done it. Rejoice with me. I just found my sheep that was lost. There'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Then he tells the story of the lost coin. Now, this is the point for home because... If I see Jesus about his work, 
even if it means he's out there eating with the sinners. I can be the Pharisee grumbling about what Jesus is doing. I can't believe God's doing this. Holy shamoli. Emphasis on the word holy. Or I can roll up my sleeves and get into it with him. If I'm the scribes and the Pharisees that day, Jesus tells that story, I pray to God that my reaction would be, you're right. Get me a place at the table. I want to be out there with you. I want to look for the lost sheep with you. That's what I want to be. I want to be about your business, Jesus. Thank you for pointing it out to me. I'm not going to be a grumbler. I'm not going to be a complainer. They're useful for the ground, opening us up, opening up and swallowing us up. That's not where I want to be. I want to be where you want me to be, which was the point of the reading for that day. And the results of this we see in Isaiah 54, 11 through 17, which is the, the fruit of the point for home. Isaiah 54, 11 through 17. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. You're saying, what does that mean? Look it up in the dictionary. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles. What's a carbuncle? Google it. All of your walls of precious stones. Read this. All of your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. This is the Isaiah passage Jesus is quoting in John. Jesus quotes this to the grumbling Pharisees. In righteousness you'll be established. You'll be far from oppression. You won't fear like the sissy spies. From terror it won't come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it's not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. I've created the smith who blows the fire on coals and produces a weapon for its purposes. I've created the ravager to destroy. No weapon fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Now, which side of the grumbling do you want to be on? The side of the grumbling, where the ground opens up and swallows you? Or the side of the grumbling, where God builds your, 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 your house, and He establishes the foundations with these precious stones? Where you are taught, your children are taught of the Lord. Where it changes who you are and what you do. That's the option Jesus was giving. And the sad part is, some people left and went home. And quit following. And made their choice. It's a choice each of us get to make.
And, oh, Lord, I want my choice to be not grumbling, not complaining, but faithful, obedient, humble service from the heart, motivated by the kindness my Father has shown me through the grace in His Son. That's where I want to stand. I want you to stand with me there. Okay? All right. Next day. Jesus, Son of the Father and man. Now, uh, Pastor David was, was working on this today too. Jesus was making that claim. My Father. And what the Jews were thinking of is basically genetics. The Jews were big on genetics. They didn't use that word. They didn't understand the gene pool. They used the word descendants, ancestry. But Jesus had a very clear descendants, and he had clear ancestry, and many people were wondering where I was going to put in all the genealogies in the context readings. This is one of the places we put them in. Don't we know who Jesus? We know his mom and dad. We know where he came from. How's he claimed to be the bread from heaven? Yes, they knew. They knew all the way down to Ruth 1 through 4, too. Good place, I thought, to put Ruth. Because Ruth stands in the genealogy of Jesus. It's a short Old Testament book. It's four chapters. I remember when we read it in Hebrew class. Didn't take long to read it. Read it, I think, uh, like a chapter a day or something. It's pretty easy Hebrew. You just read right through it. It's a delightful story, easily written, not just for young kids to be able to read in Hebrew school, but easily read by any of us. And there are some legal ramifications that we don't understand as well today, like we would have if we'd been reading it 3,000 years ago when the events took place. But we still have a pretty good grasp on it. And there are enough legal intricacies to keep scholars busy writing articles about what it is or isn't, which is delightful if you really want to read that stuff. But I like the story. It's a great story. The story of Ruth is a story that takes place in Bethlehem. And there's a famine in the land. And because of this famine in Bethlehem, a dad and his wife take their two sons and they head to Moab. Moab from Bethlehem is a little bit south, a little bit east. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea. It's the land of the Moabites. Hence the name Moab. So, uh, this gentleman, Elimelech is his name. Elimelech and his wife and their two sons go to Moab to ride out the famine. And while they're in Moab, both of the sons marry Moabite women. Now, you might be thinking, hey, that's illegal. Jews can't marry non-Jews. Well... They're not supposed to marry non-Jews that don't convert to Judaism. The man dies. Elimelech. The two sons die. 
and it leaves the mom or wife, depending upon your perspective, it leaves the mom there with her two daughter-in-laws. Now the mom, Naomi is her name, Naomi's going to head back home. She's going to go find extended relatives. She's headed back toward Bethlehem. And she says to her daughter-in-laws, Hey, you don't have to go. You don't have to follow. You're from Moabite, or you're Moabites from Moab. Stay here with your families. And you, you're free to do that. And Ruth, one of the daughter-in-laws, says, No, wherever you go, there you're going to find me. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. She was converted. So Ruth goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem. Now Naomi's thinking, I got to do something. I got to help this, my daughter-in-law. And so she says, we've got a distant relative. I want you to go over to his field. His name is Boaz. And just sort of glean some from his field. The way Moses had set up the law is when people harvested their fields, they weren't supposed to harvest the edges. And they weren't supposed to get down and sweep up all the little crumbs so that people who needed the food, who couldn't afford food, would have places around the edges where they could harvest and where they could work for their food and get food. And so Naomi goes, or not Naomi, Ruth goes and she works under uh, in Boaz's field and Boaz kind of takes a shining to her, as we might say. And he pulls aside some of his servants and says... Uh, Drop a little extra for her. Or, you know, leave some little extra for her. And and through this process, a courtship evolves. And ultimately, Boaz comes in as a, um, a kinsman redeemer. And, and scholars call this a Leverite marriage from the Latin word levir, L-E-V-I-R. Not from Levi. The, the Levitical stuff. No. Levir is the Latin word for brother-in-law. And so it's called a, a, a Leverite marriage. Scholars aren't convinced that's what it is, but that's the general consensus of, of most scholars. And so this, this Boaz marries Ruth. And they have a kid. And the kid has a kid. Guess who comes out of this lineage? Two generations removed. King David. So King David is someone who descends from Ruth through this lineage that goes all the way back to Moses. I mean to Abraham, past Moses. Um, because he's not only got the lineage through Moabite Ruth, but he's got the lineage also through the paternal line there as well. So from this comes not just David, but from this comes Jesus. And it was just a delightful place. It's a marvelous story. It's a story that I find wrapped up in a couple of Proverbs as well. So I put Proverbs 14.1 um, with this story. Proverbs 14.1 says, um, let's see, the wisest of women builds her house 
but folly with her own hands tears it down. I like the story of Ruth because it teaches the power of redemption. It teaches the faithfulness of God. But it also teaches the beauty of intimacy and relationships. And even though it's Ruth making the statement to Naomi, they're words that I think are great even in a wedding with a husband and a wife. Wherever you go, there you will find me. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And when two Christians get married, for both to say that to the other is a profound recognition of the bond and the relationship that exists in Christ, that exists only with God. So we had Proverbs 14.1. It's something that builds the house. And then I had Proverbs 19.14 with this as well. House and wealth are inherited from fathers. But a prudent wife is from the Lord. Now, we have a lot of people in here who are not married and uh, uh, have been called to a singlehood or at a point in their life where they're widowed or widowers or are separated and single or whatever. I want to set you on a pedestal. I'm not setting you down. I'm setting you on a pedestal for a moment. And I'm addressing the rest of us. Those who are married are planning on getting married. And this is what I'd like to say. I cannot understand what it's like to be a wife. I've never been one. Um, I can't speak to the wife end of this. I can only speak from a husband's perspective. But from the perspective of a husband, there is nothing more incredible in this world than the honor and privilege and blessing of being married to a prudent Christian godly woman. And I exalt and hold up as an example, not just my wife, but my sister's. My mom, so many of you women that I know in here, are you perfect? No. I, I remember my uh, an old preacher of mine who used to stand up and say, hey, my wife is an angel. She's always up in the air harping about something. <laughs> See, by attributing that to George... I don't have to say it about my wife, but I can still get it out there. Um, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm just talking about someone who faithfully tries to follow the Lord and love her family and build her family. Now, how someone does that with some of us husbands who maybe aren't so conducive to it is beyond me. And, and I will also speak as a husband to the husbands and remind us that our responsibility, whether we have married a prudent wife from the Lord or not, 
Our charge and responsibility is to love our wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When you get right down to it, there are so many practical lessons about life in the Bible. I, I need to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. Well, yeah, but my wife's not really worthy of that love. Okay, and the church was? I mean, did Christ wait for the church to get worthy before he loved her and gave himself up for her? Well, yeah, but you don't understand. My wife's not like even remotely close. And the church was? Christ was dying for the people who were hammering the nails into his hands. The, the practical advice is one of the, the, the joys of, for me of worshiping at this church are the practical advice. Now, I so admire Pastor David for this 10-week charge he's put in here about challenge to giving. That's like impossible for a preacher to do. Because there's always something in the back of people's heads saying, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say you get your salary from the church. Well, David's going to make the same whether we increase our giving or not. This gym, the power, we're making budget. We don't have to worry in this church about, yeah, this must be really far behind. Nah, 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 nah. We make budget fine. But this is a church with mission-minded pastors and a mission-minded congregation. And so, you know, we've got a church starting in New Orleans. We've got them up in Long Island. We've got the campus, the North Campus. I was talking to Pastor Stephen last night. They are hoping by the year 2020 to have 2,000 people worshiping at the North Campus. They're not looking, 2,000 people by 2020. They're not looking to gather bricks from other churches. They're not into brick stealing. They're trying to find the unchurched in their community and bring them in. We have services here in Spanish. Did you know we have a Portuguese service? We're looking, some people from our class are st talking about starting. Uh, and, and, and they've talked to Pastor David about it. And he says, the way we're going to start is with a class. And then as the class grows, it'll grow. In Iranian. Farsi is the language. And that's just like such an honor to be a part. So David is not doing this because... Desperate times call for desperate measures. David is just recognizing there are practical instructions in here that can transform our lives. I, I, I'll be the first to tell you. I've been on both sides of the coin. I've been at the bottom of the ladder. And my goal in life is to be at the top of that ladder the way they've painted it. Because there's... It's the faithfulness of God that reaches down and changes who we are. That's what I want. Not because we got to make budget. I want to do it because I want to grow in my faithfulness to the Lord. 
So, and I just, I think it's so thrilling to be at this church right now. I think there's so many things on the move for this church. I'm so thrilled that after class today, we're going to take just a few minutes to shoot that video for Hull, England, so that they can see in Hull, England, that we've got people here excited to come over there and take the gospel message. And I just am excited to be here. So anyway, I've gotten digressed. Here's a point for home. There is a power in practical holiness. There is a power. You know, you look at what Ruth did. All she did is put one foot in front of the other and tried to do right by the Lord, right by her mother-in-law, right in her station in life. And out of it comes the Lord Jesus Christ generations later. There is an incredible power in practical holiness in just doing each day what God set before you to His glory and His credit with the heart of God as opposed to the ambition of man and woman. So that's your point for home. we got seven minutes. Let's do calling and sending out in seven minutes. These were a couple of days put together. Jesus had 12 that stayed behind. His 12, although one of them, Judas, was a devil. Now that doesn't mean Judas was actually the devil. It doesn't even mean that Judas was possessed. Judas, um, the devil means adversary. You know, it's like when, when Jesus said in Matthew 16 to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't think like God thinks, you think like man thinks. Well, it's not because at that moment Peter had become Satan and was possessed. Don't get me wrong. I believe there can be possession. But that's not what was going on there at that point in time. And so we don't need to read too much into that. But Jesus is very clearly saying, even knowing who Judas is, he has still called these out. And what he's called is he has not just called them, but he has sent them. And I gave for some of our readings the Matthew passages where Jesus sent his apostles out in groups of two to go do mission work. And it's a, a way to do it. We've added that the, the, the Hosea passage. The Hosea passage says that, that, that we are to answer the call of God with faithful service. I put in several places where God calls people. He calls us by name. If I could communicate one thing to everybody. Okay, I've got like my, my, my young kids. I always pick on Blake. I'll leave him alone. Instead, I'll pick on uh, Sarah. You're in here today. Yeah, well, you said you wanted to come to class today. Okay. So, would you rather me pick? No, I'll just... If I could say one thing to everybody in here, but especially those of you under the age of 18, it's this. God doesn't just call us to be saved. God doesn't just call us to be Christians. God calls everybody who believes in His name. God calls everybody by name to purposes and good works that God has prepared beforehand for you and I to walk in. We are not just here. We are here with divine purpose and divine mission. Now, don't 
be discouraged if you're not out there brokering a Middle East peace accord, which generally can last for up to 10 minutes. Don't be discouraged and downtrodden if you feel like your life is on a rat wheel that you just run on all day long and never go anywhere. If God puts you on that rat wheel, you run with purpose. Because God needs that rat wheel turning to entertain the people who are watching the rat run. I don't know why, but if God's got, God has purpose for you. And if God's got purpose for you, guess what? He's equipped you to do it. It's a personal call. It's a call for each one of us. But it's a call not just to do the rules God gave us. It's a call to follow His heart. It's a call to walk through this life with the heart of God seeking His ministry. And the natural reaction might be, well, I'm not really qualified. Moses used that excuse with God and it didn't get him out of it. Think about it. I gave us the Exodus 4 passage. Moses says, God, I can't do that. And God says, okay, what you got in your hand, Moses? A stick. Okay, throw the stick down on the ground. Throws it down, it becomes a snake. Pick it back up. Picks it up, it becomes a stick. God says, yeah, Moses, you may not have what it takes, but the stick does. So just take the stick to Egypt and I'll use the stick instead of you. So he puts the stick in the Nile and it turns red. He raises the stick over the land and the swarms come. He throws the stick down, it becomes a snake. Swallows Satan's stick, uh, uh, Pharaoh's sticks too, I might add. He takes the staff and he leads him. He hits the rock with the staff to bring forth water. Yeah, Moses, you don't have what it takes. But if God's behind it, he can use a stick to get it done. So don't ever think, yeah, well, I don't really have the gifts and the talents for God to use me. Wrong. You have exactly the gifts, the talent, the experiences. Yeah, but some of my experiences were really bad. Great. Let's put them to a good use. Let's redeem the horrible things that happened to you in your life. Let's redeem the horrible upbringing you had or the terrible events or the crimes committed against you. Let's redeem all of that by putting you to service in the calling that God's given for you today. God didn't wish horrible things to happen to you, but God will not let them go to waste. He will redeem them and let them mold you into a person that can do for him and his mission in this kingdom exactly what needs to be done. And that's where we need to live. We need point for home to live with a humble and a trusting heart to follow his call because it's a specific call. If you're 95 years old, you're not 95 yet, Helen. Doesn't apply to you. She's in her 90s, but she's in 95. She's a spring chick compared to 95. Okay, it doesn't apply to you as 95, all right? 
If you're 95 years old and you're breathing, you're breathing because God has a purpose for you on this planet right now. And and it may be nothing more than to pray for your sons or daughters or the person next to you. But you've got a purpose. And that's where we need to be. With an humble heart, following, putting one foot in front of the other. And if your calling in life is to change diapers, you change diapers and pray over that baby every time you do it and sing for joy in your heart. There can be no greater calling in this life than to change a diaper on a baby. There just can't be. And if your calling in this life is to take out the garbage, praise the Lord. And Lord, would you take the garbage out of my life while you're doing it. And you pray for every person you know who has garbage. Who needs that garbage taken out of their life while you're doing it. And you do it with cheer in your voice. And when someone says to you, how can you be so happy over taking out the garbage? You say to them, let me tell you about the garbage in my life that God's getting rid of. This just reminds me of the work of the Lord. And I'm doing it unto His glory. I don't care what your calling is. You are equipped to do it to the glory of God. If I didn't believe that, I would not be going back to Louisiana this afternoon. (laughs) Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray that your love, your voice, your call will come through your scriptures and through your spirit to every person who hears this message or to those people that we take this message out to, that people will hear your voice, Lord, and not be grumblers, not be unbelievers, but with a childlike appreciation for your call as our Father. Seek with an humble heart to love you, to love others, and to seek to serve you in everything we do. Lord, Help us see you moment by moment. Help us in the distresses of life to call on your name and to walk through them with your strength and your purpose. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus, for all your love. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.